The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Hey everyone. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales, a podcast about forensic pathology related topics. I'm Nicole Kroon. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents who are going into forensic pathology. And Cole is still very active in playing. Because we are recording on the same day. <laughs> we are also still drinking bourbon because we're recording on the same day. So, you're welcome. So, <laughs> the second topic that we have chosen for our super fun afternoon is homelessness. So, more sadness. <laughs> There are no happy stories here. No. So what does homeless count as? This counts as somebody who lacks a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. And I'm going to go through some quick basic epi before Nicole kind of dives into some more details. At any one night in the United States, there are over 500,000 people that are homeless. On one or paper that was published by at whitehouse.gov, in January 2018, so this is about two years ago, 552,830 people were counted as homeless. That's 0.2% of the U.S. population, or about 17 people per every 10,000 people. And over the course of a year, somewhere between 2.3 and 3.5 million people experience homelessness. So on any one night, it's about 500,000, but 25 to 3.5 million throughout the year experience homelessness. Of this population, about 65% stay in homeless shelters, where about 35% remain unsheltered in our streets. So that's sidewalks, parks, cars, abandoned buildings. The cities with the highest rates of unsheltered homeless, so that's somebody that's not staying in a, in a homeless shelter, actually San Francisco, California is number one, followed by LA, Santa Rosa, so top three are California, then wow. Seattle, Washington, where we're going, <laughs> and then we come back to California for San Jose for the fifth. And so those are for unsheltered homeless people. Woof. For sheltered homeless people, the highest rate is Boston, Mass, followed by New York, then Washington, D.C., then we bring it back to San Francisco, <laughs> then we go to Baltimore. And then the overall rate of homelessness, number one, is Washington, D.C., Followed by Boston, New York, San Francisco, and Santa Rosa. Huh, Santa Rosa, huh? Santa Rosa. Interesting. Yep, it was third for unsheltered and fifth overall. Hmm. And a lot of this makes sense. Some of the one of the most common factors for homelessness is essentially environment. And if it's less cold out, it is you have, might have slightly less motivation to find a home if you are not going to freeze to death in the streets like you would if you're in Boston, Mass. That makes sense. Yeah, one of the shocking things I read was that 56% of people experiencing homelessness are in the five states that have the largest homeless counts. So that's California, New York, Florida, Texas, and Washington. Mm. 56% in those five. That's too many. Crazy. Too many um, and then I found some percentages regarding subpopulations. So 30% of people experiencing homelessness are people in families with children. 60% mm. of all people experiencing homelessness are male. 37% oh you might have said this of the overall population are unsheltered 
Um, it's about 35%. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then 17% are chronically homeless. Mm, okay. And you had numbers from 2018. 18. So I found one paper that had some numbers from 2019, and there's been about a 3% increase in homelessness mm. in that year. But overall, the long-term trend has been downward. So from 2007, which is when data collection regarding homelessness began nationwide, there's been a 12% decrease in homelessness, despite this 3% increase. And then of the decreased trends, veterans experienced the greatest decrease in homelessness, so by about 50%. Okay. Yeah. And then I just wanted to briefly touch on risk factors. So race and ethnicity have a big impact on homelessness. So Pacific Islanders and Native Americans are the most likely to be homeless when compared to all other racial and ethnic groups. And just for like a comparison, the national average is 17 homeless people out of every 10,000 people. Yes. But for Pacific Islanders specifically, it's 160 people out of every 10,000. So 10 times higher. Yeah. So huge difference. Yes. Um, and then black multiracial and Latinx Americans are pretty similarly situated. Okay. And then other big risk factors are poverty. So 11.8% of the U.S. population struggle to afford necessities such as housing. So huge thing, not being able to afford housing. There's this thing called doubling up, which is the sharing of housing with others for economic reasons. So in 2018, about 4 million people were in a situation like that. And so that's a pretty precarious situation to be in housing wise, because if something happens with that person, then you're, you know, SOL, for lack of a better phrase. Poor health is a huge risk factor. And we'll get into this in a little bit more detail. But if you have an injury or illness that can impact your employment, which can impact your finances, which means you aren't able to pay for housing, which means you aren't able to do things that you need for your job. So it's this vicious cycle um, that also leads to worse health in the homeless population. And then a disproportionate number of homeless people report having childhood adversity, which includes poor relationships with parents, neglect, physical and sexual abuse, and being forced or placed out of the home. So there was this one study that found that 50% of homeless and runaway adolescents may have experienced physical abuse and almost a third reported sexual abuse. So a huge reason for people to be um, without home. And then economic hardship in childhood, including homelessness, it's like the cycle of violence we talked about mm -hmm. in the intimate partner violence episode, just perpetuates in on itself. And I didn't find specific statistics, but incarceration is also a huge risk factor for becoming homeless. So going into what our side of this will be, so actual death among homeless people, for every age group, homeless people are three times more likely to die than the general population. And of this, middle-aged men and young homeless women are at particular risk. So I saw a bunch of studies that varied in age, but anywhere from about, I would say like 50 to 53 is about the average age of a homeless person to die. And I've seen a little higher, a little lower, but it's around, it's just north of 50 years old. Yeah. Which is way too young because the average American lifespan right now is 78 years. Mm -hmm. So it's about 25 or so years short in lifespan just from being homeless. And homeless people experience the exact same illnesses that non-homeless people do, but at somewhere between three to six times a higher rate. Yes. And that's not 
exact for everything, but you know, they have higher rates of HIV and AIDS, tuberculosis, influenza, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and hypertension. These are often treatable and preventable diseases. Yeah, I found this really nice chart comparing health conditions among the homeless to the general U.S. population, and I will post that to our social media pages. Communicable diseases are much more common because one in like a homeless shelter, they're they're often poorly ventilated, or at some homeless camps, there isn't good sewage or waste disposal. So these diseases get passed between people pretty quickly. And they found that the risk of death is only moderately affected by substance abuse or mental illness. Whereas I think a lot of people attribute homeless death, like the the lay person would associate homeless death with overdosing or from mental illness or something like that. But it's really doesn't change the risk of death that much compared to a lot of these other factors. And a lot of this increased risk of health issues includes things like difficulty getting rest, difficulty getting and maintaining their medications, They can't eat well, they can't stay clean, they can't stay warm, Mm -hmm. and all of these start illnesses, and then they exacerbate those illnesses that are already there. Yeah. And the other big thing I wanted to note here was that hate crimes are very common amongst homeless people. From 1999 to 2005, there was one study that found 472 acts of violence against homeless people by housed people. So this isn't among, this is by house people, including 169 murders and 303 non-lethal violence episodes. Yeah, actually, now that you mention this, that um, I get the, I think it's the New York Times California newsletter daily. And there was an article recently about this guy that was going around giving homeless people food that was spiked with capsaicin. Oh, people suck. Yeah, and... It was actually spiked with so much that several of these homeless people were sent to the emergency department. Why are people the worst? Yeah. Not too surprisingly, temperature is a big driver. And this is more common among cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths. But they found that, you know, a lot of homeless deaths occur temporarily in the winter. Which isn't too surprising. And that the number one cause of death tends to be diseases of the circulatory system. And of course, there's been various studies that show various other causes of death are higher or lower, but they kind of all sit around this like one third percent. But this study found that 33% of these were diseases caused by the circulatory system and that half of all deaths were smoking attributable. Mm. They've also looked at homelessness among veterans And so they looked at homeless veterans versus non-homeless veterans and the homelessness, and this is all through VA medical records. So these are veterans that are going to the VA for at least part of their care. And they looked in a 10 year follow-up from so many cases to see how many have died. And they found that being homeless increases your rate of death um, with a hazard ratio of 2.9. So in this 10 year follow-up, 16.3% of homeless people died, whereas only 6.1% of non-homeless people died. Oh, wow. Median age of death wasn't that different, Mm -hmm. but death by violence was much higher among the homeless. So homicide hazard ratio was 7.6. Whoa. And the suicide hazard ratio was 2.7. So not only are homeless people more likely to die from somebody putting violence onto them, but also from suicide. Okay. 
So their overall findings were, you know, homelessness substantially increases the mortality risks in veterans throughout the adult age range. So this wasn't in like just younger or older. This was kind of throughout the group that they studied. Mm. They've also looked at HIV associated homeless death. So they, this was a study that was done in San Francisco. They compared those that were housed in HIV positive versus homeless and HIV positive people. And they found that those that were homeless were more likely to be younger at death. African-American have a history of injective drug use, be female or transgender or to be living below the poverty level. So not too surprisingly, the homeless people tended to be, you know, below the poverty level makes sense. But then a lot of the ones that died tended to also have these other risk factors. I see. And then there's another important study that looked at cardiovascular disease among the homeless. So among the homeless population, there are heightened traditional risk factors. So smoking, poor control of hypertension and diabetes, but then some of the non-traditional risk factors that were associated with homeless population, chronic stress, depression, heavy alcohol use, cocaine use, and HIV. So these lead to, you know, you already have lack of resources, you have lack of healthcare, you have lack of testing, and then they can't be followed up because then their care is going to not be as good. Right. And then that leads to cardiovascular disease being a major cause of death among the homeless adults. And as I said in that earlier study, about a third of deaths were related to cardiovascular disease. And the mortality rate among homeless people in this study associated with cardiovascular disease, it was two to threefold higher than the general population. Oof. So just due to some of these things that if we could provide regular functional health care, much fewer people would die. Yes. And then I found two interesting studies talking about some kind of international homelessness. Mm. One was done in the Netherlands, and they found that their highest group of deaths were not cardiovascular disease, which was only about 22%, but were called unnatural deaths. So these were 26%. So about 50% of those were suicide and murder. Mm. So, you know, and then other ones and then other things were other unnatural deaths. So like accidents and that type of thing. And then in England, there's a study out of England from 2019 that showed that since 2010, so from 2010 to 2019, homelessness increased 165%. Their median age of death is very similar to the U.S. It's about Mm 51.6. But their causes of death were, again, number one was external causes of death. So about 21.7%. And then cancer and digestive diseases were at 19%. Each? Oh. Yeah. Digestive diseases came up a lot, which I found interesting. Like Digestive diseases? Yeah. I was curious. I mean, I don't know if they mean like cancers or if they mean like cirrhosis. Oh, I was assuming they meant like ruptured esophagus. Maybe? (laughs) But I still consider that more like an alcohol thing than a... I don't know. It was interesting. And then... They had this group that they called amenable causes, and it was about 30%. So pretty much what they're saying with this is about one in three deaths were due to causes that were amenable to timely and effective health care. So their uh, conclusion from the study was if we can provide health care to this population, we can save about 30% of these deaths, hmm. which is very high. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I found about global homelessness when trying to do research was... 
The last time a global survey was attempted by the United Nations was in 2005. 2005? Yeah. And they found that an estimated 100 million people were homeless worldwide, um, and as many as 1.6 billion lacked adequate housing, so at risk of becoming homeless. Wow. Yes. So it just amazed me that they haven't tried since 2005. and. They kind of talked a little bit about why getting an accurate picture of global homelessness is pretty challenging, and it's because definitions of homelessness vary from country to country. That's fair. And then census takers struggled to count hidden homeless. So these are people who might be residing in inadequate settlements like slums or squatting in structures that are not intended for housing or couch surfing with friends and family, Um, and then people who relocate frequently. So they're not counted at any given time because they just keep moving. Whereas I know that in the U.S. they do a count every other year. Every two years they'll send people. And I, I know I researched this for something else on our podcast a while ago, but every two years essentially they send people out to do active counts in every city and get the actual numbers of homeless people in the U.S. across the U.S. Yeah. It's very, very well organized. It's something called the the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development does yes. a point-in-time count. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah, and apparently they do it on a single night in January. Yes, Yeah. which is why my data was like that January 2018. Yeah. This is the exact number. Yep. Because if you think about it, if you don't do it on an exact cross-section, you're, you're not going to get the numbers. Right, exactly. Because it changes, as we said, you know. 2.3 to 3.5 million throughout the year. So you can imagine that flux changes pretty consistently. Yep. Yeah. So besides recording the cause and manner of death for the homeless population, there are a couple of other things that medical examiners and coroners help do for this population. So one is homeless death review teams. So we talked extensively about child death review teams in our last episode, and there are similar review teams for homeless deaths that occur. And I don't think these are as regulated by legislation as child death review teams, but there are lots of cities, counties, states that have them. Just like child death review teams, people from numerous organizations, so like the medical examiner coroner, public health, law enforcement, etc., review each homeless death to identify shortfalls and gaps in our systems and community resources to make data-driven recommendations to help try to prevent future homeless deaths and improve the health and well-being of people experiencing homelessness. So I actually was went to a homeless death review board in San Francisco. Oh, cool. And this was, it was kind of a death review board. It was kind of just this one crazy case. There was this set of several people that were at a homeless encampment and they all were taking the same batch of meth together. Oh, okay. What they didn't know was that that meth was tainted with, I can't remember if it was fentanyl or some other synthetic opioid. Yeah. But four or five of them died essentially on the spot because they, you know, thought they were getting this one thing and it wasn't what it was, what they thought it was. Yeah. And this actually led to immediately they identified again before this review happened, Mm -hmm. they identified the product and then they put out this thing to essentially everybody being like, Hey, heads up, this is out there. Be careful. So that's, you know, one of the really important roles of the medical examiner and the public health officials within this is to identify these, these groups or these, trends Mm -hmm. and to see if there's anything that you can specifically do immediately to help prevent further deaths. And so this was a case like that. Oh, interesting. Huh. Nice. Well, 
so I guess that's what happens when people communicate and work together effectively. Happens sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the other things that medical examiners and coroners can do is they can house unclaimed remains for a given period of time. And the first time I encountered this was when I was shadowing at the San Joaquin County Coroner's Office. They have a room that they refer to as a columbarium where they keep all of the cremated remains cremated cremated (laughs) a columbarium where they keep all of the cremated remains of the cremains cremains of unclaimed individuals so the majority of which are are homeless individuals and i forget how long they keep them for but they keep them in labeled copper urns so that if somebody does eventually come to reclaim the cremains within the given time frame then they are able to give that decedent's ashes to the family or friends or individuals who come to collect them. And then after some period of time, they will have a ceremony where they will dispose of the remains in a very respectful manner. Yes. Yes. And besides the role of the medical examiner and coroner in these deaths, we just wanted to touch base really quickly on current issues. The pandemic is exacerbating a lot of the issues that homeless people already face. So Completely not shocking fact of the day, self-quarantine, social isolation, and stay-at-home orders are difficult, if not impossible, to follow when you don't have a home. Yes. And per the CDC, people aged 65 and over are one of the more at-risk populations for COVID-19. And people experiencing homelessness, they actually age faster than housed people. So there are a lot of studies that have shown that they have physical conditions that mirror those of people 15 to 20 years older. So on any single day, about 200,000 adults experiencing homelessness are over the age 50. And then they have that additional 15 to 20 years of age based on their physical conditions. So they're extra vulnerable to becoming seriously ill with COVID-19. And then as Jordan mentioned, communicable diseases are more readily spread in this population, which is reflected in the numerous outbreaks that have occurred in homeless shelters. So there was this one report that the CDC was looking at the prevalence of COVID-19 infection in residents and employees of different homeless shelters in four different cities. And there have been outbreaks of COVID-19 in Seattle, Boston, and a big one in San Francisco. So compared to shelters where there haven't been outbreaks, the prevalence could be as high as 66%. Wow. So okay. in San Francisco, the one shelter that had an outbreak, they found 66% of residents had COVID-19. That's crazy. But the community prevalence of San Francisco is only 5.7%. Yeah. So huge difference. I um, wonder if it's similar rates to like prisons oh true i didn't compare that but yes like the california department of corrections is currently having a huge outbreak san quentin they transferred a bunch of prisoners from a jail uh, from a prison that they knew was having an outbreak and then they just brought the they just brought them to the next place yeah yeah it was suit them yeah because all those prisoners that they transferred had been tested weeks earlier, like they didn't have recent results. Which... Turnaround time's important. I know. Well, yeah, yeah. Ugh. You know, so many issues. Anyway, so there's that. And then in addition to age, having pre-existing health conditions is also a huge risk factor for COVID. And as we mentioned, the prevalence of chronic illness is much higher in homeless populations than it is in sheltered populations. So 
A recent study sampled unsheltered individuals from across the country and found that 84% of homeless people self-reported existing physical health conditions. And this is versus 19% of people in shelters. And then I don't know what the prevalence is of people that are housed, but like that is a huge difference. And health departments around the U.S. have started implementing interventions such as relocating homeless people to stadiums where beds are spaced two meters apart. Um, And then in San Francisco, Seattle and other cities, officials have reserved hotels as places in which to isolate people. But the vast majority of homeless individuals still remain in group facilities or in tents on the street. So not a great place to be during a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, the big one that I've heard lately is the hotel thing. Because people aren't using hotels for anything else, right? Right. Like tourism isn't happening. So you have all these hotels that are just sitting there. And I get that the hotels are also not making money. And it's, you know, they don't have any reason to help besides out of the goodness of their own hearts. Plus, if you're going to have somebody staying there, you need to be able to clean it and provide resources for cleaning them between people staying there. And it's huge and it costs a lot of money. But do you pay a little bit of money up front to get things clean and get people off the street? Or do you pay a lot of money later when you're going to have to pay for their health care because they're super sick? Yeah. We also don't know the long-term effects of COVID right now. Right. So, you know, let's say that a homeless person becomes sick now and they have a mild illness and they get better, but then in 10 years we find out some horrible side effect that COVID ends up having on you, and then you have to pay for all of the healthcare later on. It just yep. snowballs yeah. so quickly. Yep. Let's spend money where it'll actually help people. No, let's spend money bailing out more corporations. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. And more F-35s. Yes. Sarcasm. All of it. <sighs> Story time? Story time. <laughs> Uh, My story is going to be pretty short. It's just a case that I had one time. I previously, in our hypothermia episode, told a story about a homeless family that died of carbon monoxide poisoning in their car. So you can go back and listen to that one. But on the personal front, I was doing an away rotation at Stanford, and I was rotating through the Santa Clara Medical Examiner's Office. And in the morning... They ask the resident, you know, is there anything in particular that you want to work on? At the time, I was a medical student, so I was working with one of the docs. But the resident chose to do one case, and the attending decided to work on another. And so I was working with the attending on this case. And essentially, it was this homeless woman, and it was a rule-out hypothermia. So as we have discussed before, hypothermia is kind of like a diagnosis of exclusion when it comes to death. You're essentially just trying to make sure that they didn't die from other causes. Plus minus, you can maybe find weird things like ulcers in the stomach that could point towards hypothermia being the cause. So the attending I was working with thought it was a good idea that the resident didn't choose this one since it was a pretty, you know, straightforward case. Yeah. But as it turns out, it was not that straightforward. So as soon as we undressed the decedent... We saw all of these, like, fungating masses on her chest. Oh, no. She had these bandages wrapped around her torso. Okay. So we took off her clothes, and then we took off the bandages, and we just saw these these masses that were ulcerating through her skin, essentially. So cancer. So cancer. Like, very bad cancer. Yeah. When we cut her open to do the internal examination, it was everywhere like I have never seen a body so riddled with cancer it was like all along her spinal cord and she had this kind of like 
polypoid mass hanging off of the top of her uterus, the fundus of her uterus. Yeah. It was kind of interesting because it was very unexpected. Yeah. And the fact that she was riddled with so much disease and had survived for so long and didn't look particularly sick. Like a lot of times when people have that much disease, they look like really thin yeah, and kind of pale. Yeah. But she, like you wouldn't have been able to tell from the outside if you had seen that. Yeah. And when we did the histologic examination, it ended up being breast cancer that was just like everywhere. I find it interesting that you say that because the only time I've seen cancer fungating through the skin was when I was on the breast oncology service in medical school and we had this woman come into the ED with this fungating breast mass yeah. that she like tried to cover up with something and then it ended up being like cat hair and stuff in there. Oh. And her, like not taking care of it. Whoa. Um, but yeah, I guess I also had a case at UCSF with like fungating breast cancer. It goes through the breast. It was like direct extension from primary through the skin. But yeah, the only time I've seen that besides this case was a colon cancer actually that oh. was like coming out through the abdomen. So alien. Yes. So alien. Yeah. And it was just one of those stories where, you know, a lot of people, they think, oh, you go into a certain specialty and then you see, like, the same types of cases over and over and over again. Like, we're going to see a lot of heart disease. But in this case, we saw something completely unexpected that you would not have seen if you did not do a thorough death investigation. And it also ties into the fact that the majority of deaths in the homeless population are due to natural disease. Yes. So cardiovascular disease and cancer, as was this case. Yes. And if somebody like that was getting regular health care, maybe they would have gotten a mammogram and caught this when it was still small and yep. could have had it taken out yep. and might have not died from it. Yep. Like, preventative care is the best care. Yes. <laughs> Early screening. Love it. Preventative care is the best care. <laughs> Let's get t-shirts. I just coined a term, guys. <laughs> or a phrase. Um, all right, so my story is a going to be a, a trip, guys. Hold on. Let me just get the popcorn. You should. All right. I don't like popcorn that so, much. <laughs> so you put all kinds of butter on it. Yeah. And Parmesan cheese. <laughs> Truffle Parmesan popcorn at Alamo Draft House. It used to be the best when movies were a when thing. When movies were a thing. Yeah. When we could go out and spend time with people outside of the house. Or spend time with people in general, for that matter. <laughs> we're not so, in person right now. So I'm not going to give you the... What I titled this because it'll give it away. Okay, looking forward right. to the big reveal at the end. Then no, I mean it'll be pretty quick. It is, it's not too much. Okay. So on October 29th, 1998, a homeless woman, 48-year-old Shirley Delahunty, was found in a doorway, dead. Her throat was slashed, Oof. and she was essentially completely drained of blood. Okay. Her cause of death ended up being exsanguination. Shocker. Within the next three weeks, another three homeless men had their throat slash with some blood being taken through said throat slash, although all three of those homeless men lived. Hmm. The offender was then called the vampire slasher uh-huh. or the vampire ninja. Vampire ninja. Wow. Th- that'll come up later. Okay. So... I'm just going to dive in and tell you who it is because his history kind of goes into a lot of what you were talking about with risk factors. Yeah. So Joshua Rudiger was born in 1976 
and had a pretty difficult upbringing. He was found at seven months old in a filthy bathtub in his mother's apartment, where he was likely unattended for about two to three days. Whoa. He lived in about four different foster homes over the next two years. And at age four, he was diagnosed with mental retardation and psychosis. He told his doctor that he had begun living a double life where he saw himself as a ninja warrior. Okay. At age 15, after living in multiple foster homes, he tried to stab himself with a samurai sword, as all good ninjas do. Over the next eight months, he was in several different psychiatric hospitals. He would sneak out of his room at night and lick the chest of other patients. Oh, what? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm going to have nightmares tonight. I'm going to wake up and my cat is going to be licking my chest and I'm going to be like, ah! This is going to make it even better since you named your cat Vlad. It's one of his names. Exactly. He told his therapist that I'm going to be a vampire and suck their blood out. Good, 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 good. In 1997, he was arrested for a knife attack on a homeless man. The victim died quickly due to some other things, so he wasn't charged. And then in August of that year, so August 1997, he spent six months in Atascadero State Hospital after a bow and arrow attack on a former friend. Now, this friend also didn't testify against him, so he's just put on probation and was at this live-in treatment center. Mm. But at this time, he was finally diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Okay. Which makes sense given the delusions that we've heard at this point. Yeah. So soon after he was discharged from that center, he moved to Oakland and into a residential hotel. So a residential hotel is essentially a homeless shelter. So he continued to be homeless. About five months later, he started his attack, the first of which on Miss Shirley Delahunty, who was found exsanguinated as he, as his vampire self, Drank the blood, and then three other homeless men that he drank some of their blood. Wait, he drank it? Like... Yes, he drank it. So Shirley Delahunty died because of a because her throat was slashed. Yeah. And then she was drained of blood because he drank it. Oh, I was imagining like... Nope. Oh, okay. Well. No. Yep. Why are we drinking bourbon when we could be drinking cocktails <laughs> called... Vampire blood? Vampire blood. I'm sure that exists. So, due to this, his known history of this vampire behavior, he was found pretty quickly. He told authorities that he had been a samurai in another life, who burned down the holiest temple in Japan, killing worshippers, and was then punished by God in this life by being forced to drink human blood to maintain his vitality. Another... Thing that he claimed at various points was to be a 2,000-year-old vampire mm-hmm. and obviously needed blood to survive. Yes. No, well, that makes sense. Also, one of his quotes that has been quoted many times is, Pray is prey. Pray is prey. Pray is prey. Okay. So apparently he only meant to make a small cut in this woman's neck to drink her blood, but then she moved and it became a larger slash. So I think he drank a lot of it, but like I'm sure some of it also... like spilled out yeah but he was only planning on like the other men to like just drink some of the blood okay and then his claim is that this was an accident so and if the other men lived you said the other, the other three homeless men lived were they and i think one of them identified him oh were they drugged or something 
like whatever. I couldn't find anything specifically okay. on that. I'm but just wondering. Yeah. How did they not notice and stop him? Yeah. Because yeah. you would think if you have like the. Please. <laughs> so you're not a fan of hickeys, is what I'm hearing. Um, not <laughs> hickeys with a knife. That <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no knife hickeys, thank you. <laughs> um, so apparently he, understandably, tried to plead guilty by reason of insanity. Yes. But they did not take that. And he was charged oh, with really? second degree murder for the woman oh. and um, assault for the three men. Yeah. He went to San Joaquin. So he was, he was then, uh, he recently, he was at the California healthcare facility in Stockton and on the afternoon of May 31st, 2020 prison staff found 40 year old Aaron Cordaire unresponsive in the showers at this care facility. Oh, Aaron Cordaire was in for first degree murder and assault and Rudiger was the only other one in the showers at the time. I couldn't find anywhere, like, the exact injury. Yeah. But essentially he was slashed. <gasps> so it kind of fits the the cutting thing. Although his it, prior MO. His prior MO. Yeah. But it doesn't mention anything about, like, drinking yeah. of the blood in this. Because, again, this is very recent. It was May. Yeah. Or the end of May, really. So it's only been a month and almost two months now. Wow. So it... And this was a facility that provides mental health care to inmates who have the most severe and long-term needs. Yeah. Which, as somebody with schizophrenia and bipolar, he definitely fits into that. Right. So, you know, he wasn't in the general prison population. He yeah. was at this other care facility. Yeah. But they still weren't able to protect the other inmates. Wow. And his next appearance in court is August 10th. And for us right now in real lifetime, it's the end of June. So it'll be about a week and a half and he'll make his next appearance in court according to the more recently published articles that are out about this right now. So I, when I found this guy, I initially searched just, you know, homeless murder essentially. And this one came up. And then as I re-googled his name separately, this recent, this recent case came up. So it wasn't meant to be timely, but it ended up being very timely. And of course this is, he has been arraigned for this, but it's not definite by any means. So just throwing that out there. But it seems to fit, and it seems like from the little evidence that the little bit that I've seen in these articles that he might have been the only one there. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. We'll have to do an update in a future episode. Yeah. I don't know if I can segue as well as I did in the last one. I mean, it it'll be hard to top what you did. Oh, I think I got one. So now let's cut to our social media. <laughs> if you guys can see my eye roll right now, imagine it going all the way up and around. That's that's it's what just happened to my face. <laughs> <laughs> you know you love me I do uh, so if you like this <laughs> and any and all of our other episodes please remember to rate, review, and subscribe it's how we get boosted up on the various podcasting platforms and other people learn about us you can also visit our website at deadmendotellpodcast.com where we link all of our sources in our episode guide on twitter we're at deadmendo on Insta, we're at the Dead Tale Tales. And our Facebook page is Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. And as always, please send us an email with any questions, comments, concerns, just saying hi. You know, we like saying hi through the website <laughs> or directly to the Dead Tale Tales at gmail.com. And our opening theme music is Introducing the Pre-Roll by Lee Rosevere, who you can find on SoundCloud. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a fun visual imagery. <clears throat>